So it's a pay-as-you-go way to consume broadband, making it more like putting gas in the gas tank. So if I need one day's worth of broadband, I can pay to keep that service active. Other times, we can just let the account draw down. This is episode 291 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. For about 10 years, the community of Wilson, North Carolina, has been served by its own publicly owned fiber optic network. Greenlight Community Broadband has brought fast, affordable, reliable connectivity to residents and businesses throughout the community of approximately 49,000 people. Along the way, the utilities attracted employers, kept local dollars in the community, and instilled a sense of pride of ownership. Now Greenlight is experimenting with ways to connect residents who might have difficulties connecting to traditional carriers due to credit or income limitations. In this episode, Christopher talks with Will Acock from Greenlight about their inventive program to get more people online. In the interview, you'll hear Christopher mention the nearby community of Pine Tops, where Wilson extended Greenlight service in 2016. After a court decision that reversed an FCC order and a state law that carved out a shaky exception for Pine Tops, the tiny community is on the verge of losing Greenlight service. There's a lot of history there, and we discussed the situation in episode 226 of the podcast back in November 2016. You can learn more about Wilson, Greenlight, and Pine Tops at muninetworks.org. Now let's get on with the interview. Here's Christopher with Will Acock from Wilson, North Carolina. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, where it's probably a lot colder than North Carolina, where my guest, Will Acock, is the general manager of Greenlight Community Broadband. Welcome back to the show, Will. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Happy to be here again. I'm really excited to talk to you about something that I first learned about from a a column that Susan Crawford did talking about uh, how Wilson has done tremendous things in terms of connecting low-income folks. Uh, But let's start with just a quick reminder for folks. Wilson Greenlight Community Broadband. What is it? So Greenlight Community Broadband is uh, an operating department of the city of Wilson. We operate our community's uh, fiber-to-the-home network. Uh, We've been around since 2008, and we provide residential, commercial, uh, institutional services, uh, both broadband as well as video, voice, uh, and Metronet services. Right, and we're not going to talk today about uh, the situation uh, with Pine Tops, but people may have seen Do Not Pass Go, a wonderful video, short documentary about um, your efforts there to connect some of your neighbors. Um, But um, that's sort of not the subject today. We're talking more about the urban stuff. Right. So, Will, we're going to come to a new program, or or at least new to my knowledge, program in which people can pay ahead um, to connect. And we'll talk about why that's important. But I think it's worth starting more generally. Why is it important uh, for the city of Wilson to drive connectivity to folks who might not have the means of of middle class folks to just go out and connect? Why is it important to bring everyone on the network? Well, really, it's about driving more return on the community's investment in the fiber optic network. And so the more people we're able to connect, uh, in particular, the more uh, you know, people who've traditionally not been able to have access were able to connect, the more benefit we'll realize. Of course, the obvious benefit of more revenue being generated by the network itself. And then probably the more important benefit, which is you know connecting folks who've been on sort of the wrong side of the digital divide to next generation broadband and enabling them to participate in the modern economy, which we are confident you know helps with workforce development, 
uh, and generally speaking, helps grow uh, the economy of our community. It's interesting that you you phrase it that way in some ways. I mean, um, and this gets into into some common misconceptions, but um, the the community it certainly um, built the network in terms of you're a utility that's owned by the community, but um, taxpayers didn't pay for the network, right? You didn't use any taxpayer dollars. No, we did not. No, we were uh, originally uh, funded through. COPs or certificates of participation, and since then we've been operating on the revenues the network has generated. But yet you still have this this sense of we're all in it together, and it's very much a community-driven kind of process. Right. It's the nature of public infrastructure, whether you're talking about you know water, roads, uh, broadband, uh, or electric. Uh, the, the purpose is to serve the community and help the community to prosper. So, Will, as we move back into the, the main reason I wanted to talk to you here, um, can you tell me a little bit about this program that, that Susan Crawford had noted and which I think has not gotten enough attention, the ability for people to take service from Greenlight who may have a low or a very poor credit rating? Right. One of the things that we've identified is that you know credit rating um, can be a barrier uh, to gaining access to broadband service. So one of the things we wanted to do was to remove that barrier, and we found that prepay was an effective way to do it. So essentially, someone can come in and establish an account, and as long as they keep a very minimal balance on the account uh, in a prepay status, they're able to maintain the service. So it's a pay-as-you-go uh, way to consume broadband, making it more like you know, thinking about it in terms of putting gas in the gas tank. So if I need one day's worth of broadband, I can I can pay uh, to keep that service active, uh, perhaps because my child has a, a big project and they need to work on. And then importantly, other times when maybe, you know, there are other budgetary priorities, you can just let the account draw down. Uh, the service becomes inactive, but it's still there. It does nothing to damage their credit. There's no collections. There's no fundamental disconnect process they go through. Simply sitting there waiting to be recharged, if you will. Uh, and again, people can pay for uh, as as little uh, as they want, really, down to even just one day's worth of service. One of the other benefits of the program is that if someone had a uh, past due balance with us, the program can be set up so that that back balance uh, can be uh, slowly drawn down over time. Each time they make a payment, uh, a portion of that payment can go to the past due amount while continuing to keep service enabled. So again, it provides access and helps people to... Uh, begin to even potentially uh, help improve their credit over time. And how has the response been from the public to this service? Well, it's certainly something that we've seen grow uh, pretty rapidly, something that uh, as word of mouth uh, gets around uh, the community and as we begin to market it, uh, people are very eager uh, to sign up for the service, uh, particularly when they learn that there's no deposits, no credit checks required, they can gain access, um, and then don't have to go through the disconnect, reconnect process uh, that is typical with most service providers if the account does uh, end up past you or, or drawn down. Well, I think that's it's really worth just dwelling on that for a second because many of us who have had the the good fortune not to have significant employment interruption or or other medical challenges um, that we were unable to deal with, um, you know, it, it's important to note that in, in in many cities, if a person becomes past due on the one provider or the two providers, that they're effectively locked out of future communication services, right? Right, and that's one of the things we hope to to overcome here in the community by offering this program. People can always have access uh, and just have that account there, in essence, waiting uh, for when they're able to and desire to uh, to recharge the account and re-enable their Internet service. 
And one of the things that I think um, many municipal networks find when they're starting is that uh, it's one of the challenges you face in the first several years is this issue of of credit. Um, And I'm curious, you know, for other municipal networks that might be listening and getting ideas, is this the kind of thing that you need to wait a little bit until you're more mature with your cash flow to be able to do? Because, I mean, for I'm assuming that, and I want to—I don't know what your numbers are exa- exactly, but I'm guessing that to connect a new home is probably like a thousand dollars, and um, to do that on a pay-ahead plan, it might be difficult for a newer network to handle. When we first launched, one of the things that we realized was that there was a certain amount of churn in the network where people would connect and disconnect, and of course, part of that was due to uh, payment issues. And the result of this churn was we had many installed locations across the community that were not active. And so one of the reasons we went out and and found this uh, idea of prepay was to remedy that problem, wanting to make sure that each installed location has every ability to continue to generate revenue for the network and allow the resident uh, to be connected to broadband. That's great. I mean, it's actually kind of funny in some ways that a program that seems you know, almost to be more social work is actually driven by good business sense in some ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the priorities is keeping all the assets that you had deployed in productive utilization, uh, both generating revenue and providing the benefit to the resident. So uh, it's it's pretty basic business principle to do this. So if I remember correctly, which is, um, it seems more and more of a problem lately, um, it's been about a year since you and I talked about the program where you were installing uh, public housing um, areas, uh, developments with um, right. a low-cost service. How is that working out? Uh, it's working well. It continues to be popular. I'd say we have just over half of the residents uh, in our public housing uh, developments opting for the service. Um, so we continue to to see uh, lots of adoption there and people enjoying the program and benefiting from it. That's a $10 a month, 50 megabit symmetrical approach? Right, and we actually are providing the service to the housing authority themselves. So it's a bulk contract. Um, so they just tell us how many units they want uh, and have active, and then they handle the billing to the resident themselves. So we have one customer, and they manage the the relationship on the other side. Well, I guess that's that's one lesson learned. Are there are there any other lessons learned for for other folks who might be thinking about doing something like this? Well, I, I think just uh, being open to those types of partnerships, being able to sit down and uh, explore things with various stakeholders like public housing, uh, is, is how you derive these novel solutions. And uh, one other one that uh, we've written about in the past with the help of uh, Catherine Rice, who's no doubt listening to this show. Hey, Catherine, um, is the SPOT program, which uh, which gives uh, kids an opportunity after school to, to learn some more skills and to have a place to go uh, for some who may not have a, a better choice. Yes. Sharing positive outcomes together uh, is what it stands for. And it's essentially a youth-oriented program that provides after-school care and educational opportunities uh, for children here in our community. Uh, We also have held our first uh, hackathon here this year, coincident with our Whirligig Festival in November. Uh, And interestingly, the Housing Authority is now working with the Cramden Institute to provide training for their residents. And once they uh, go through the training with Cramden, they're actually being given devices. So it's really a comprehensive solution in our public housing now. So, well, you know, I have to say, (laughs) as someone who's gone back and listened to some of the arguments back in... um, 
the late 2000s when um, you know there was some doubters, uh, some people who have since become big fans of the network. Uh, this, in my mind, seems like it's been a bigger success than than many people even hoped for. You know, it strikes me that when this network was built, it was a time in which people were hoping to have uh, some more stability in pricing and a better option and that sort of thing. Um, you know, as we're almost 10 years on from when the network launched, um, you know, do you have any reflections on on what's been different than you expected when you took this project on? Well, you know, just seeing all the new ways that we continue to uncover that we can, you know, bring value to our organization and to our community by leveraging the network. Uh, clearly, when you look at what's on the horizon in terms of the Internet of Things, uh, 5G technologies, uh, the continued push around smart cities, and what does that mean for micropolitan communities? If the I think potential of the network is just now beginning to to be realized, and there's much more to come. And of course, when you look at the clear uh, trend towards over-the-top delivery of video content, you can see how this whole entire industry segment has evolved and evolved in such a way that really brings technology closer and closer to our network. Yeah, well, I, I just have to say, I mean, uh, I find it inconvenient in many times to refer to Chattanooga and others because people have been very familiar with it. But um, for anyone who's listening to this, who if this is your first introduction to Wilson, I strongly encourage you to take a look. The impact on jobs, on uh, on helping the community out um, have been tremendous. And I can't say enough about what you've done down there, uh, Will. I know that um, Eastern, Eastern North Carolina is facing some hard economic times, but I think you're providing hope to a lot of folks and showing a real path forward. I really hope that uh, that you can you can continue it, and uh, it'd be great if uh, we can see some expansion and whatnot. Because, um, well, I got to tell you, uh, you've done a great job. Well, thank you very much. Again, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. That was Christopher with Will Acock from Greenlight, the municipal fiber network in Wilson, North Carolina. Will has been on the podcast before. Check out episodes two thirty six, two twenty six, one ten, and seventy. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast, You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. We want to thank Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And we also want to thank you for listening to Episode 291 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. (laughs) 